Welcome to the 84th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the, the best practices for application instrumentation. So, there are a lot of conflicting signals on the internet about how to properly build and monitor and do whatever to pretty much every system that's ever been built. Haha, <laughs> bad pun. Yes, but as as the internet grows up a little bit and Google's SRE team kind of infiltrates the the brain space of everybody around them, we're things are starting to uh, coalesce towards a set of standards and kind of best practices and, and ways you operate on building a telemetry stack, building an observability stack, building an alerting uh, an alerting stack, and we want to talk a little bit about that today. The goal being is how to have good telemetry, which is kind of the first step toward having good observability. So to kind of set this up, I'm working for a new client. And as we were in discussions and I was taking notes, I realized that I needed to leave uh, some documentation about some good observability, uh, visibility best practices for, for the new client. They're moving a, an application that's in the proof of concept stage into a productionized environment. And my idea was, how can I help them better integrate with uh, Datadog, which was their chosen visibility solution, and how to have some best practices so they kind of get the most out of their transition into this more productionized environment. So I made a ticket to do this uh, in their ticketing system. Well, turns out, as you know, things happen. Uh, the proof of concept kind of took a left turn, and there was lots of reshuffling of how we get from the proof of concept environment to the production environment. Stuff happens. That's that's why you have professionals, right? Um, but a bunch of work got deprioritized and moved around and reprioritized, and my lowly ticket of setting up uh, some best practices and documenting some best practices uh, ended up getting moved into the current sprint, today's sprint, whatever sprint it is, um, as a bunch of the work was, was otherwise shifting around because this didn't have any sort of visible uh, dependencies. And of course, what I was thinking in my head is that once we start having some applications that, are, that we're productionizing, that we're setting up in the production environment, we could look at the tech stack, we could take some sort of detailed core samples and give some customized uh, best practices for for the code language they're using, for the protocols they're using, um, for the logging library they've already implemented. Um, kind of trying to take advantage of of the tech stack solutions that they've already come up with and turn those to to make the best sort of practices that match what their needs are. Because one of the things that I firmly believe in is a lot of the best practices that we talk about on the show aren't just off-the-shelf solutions. They're really custom to your shop and your tech stack. Once you get the puzzle pieces in the right place, everything fits together. And the puzzle is different for everyone. But a lot of those pieces really do toward a, sort of trend towards the same overall goals. Some of them do have the same shape. And that's why we thought it would be a good episode for for the podcast, because even though every implementation is custom, the overall reason that you're doing it is kind of the same. Yep. And 
it turned out that to to meet this ticket to make some progress, I needed to go ahead and give the client a set of recommendations and best practices, really not knowing what their tech stack is going to be, other than it runs in Kubernetes. Um, so my first thought is, you know, everybody can read the internet as well as I can, right? So I put together a sort of curated set of some of the best practices in instrumentation patterns and logging patterns um, as that sort of root uh, in orbit of Datadog, which was the other piece of the puzzle I actually knew, and to try to get them you know, kind of started in the right direction with the understanding that once we get more firm in the exact tech stack that's going to be used, we can kind of, kind of come back and revisit and refine these best practices. Yeah, so to me, there's there's two really important things here. There's knowing what your tech stack looks like in terms of which pieces you're using. Are you using a custom written Go application? Are you using Elasticsearch? Are you using Redis? Are you using Cassandra? Java, Scala, you know, whatever what, it is. What, what language are you using? What API libraries, instrumentation libraries, there we go, um, fit with that language, uh, which work better than others? And the other side of it is knowing what observability stack or stacks you're trying to use. So if you are an open source shop that is running everything yourself and you've gone the Prometheus Elasticsearch route, or if you're doing Datadog, or if you're doing Splunk, or whatever you're doing on the other side, some of your decisions will get get moved and tuned based on those as well. Um, for example, if you're doing Elasticsearch for logging, Elasticsearch basically only speaks JSON at this point. So it would be silly to write a log generator that writes thrift because you then you have to translate that at another step of the pipeline. So go ahead and use things that fit the pipeline and the pieces that you already have so you're not reinventing the wheel constantly. So one of the points that I wanted to first make in my sort of set of best practices kind of reflected what was happening on the ground with this production I set up. We are in the process of setting up some infrastructure inside of Kubernetes, and some of this infrastructure is is purchased um, software-as-a-service products that have a container to integrate into your environment and what have you. And you know, part of this is like the Datadog agent. And since we're purchasing these components, we don't have a lot of control over them, much less how they log and how, they, how they're instrumented. And that's kind of one thing to be aware of, is that you're always going to have third-party applications or applications that you have less control over versus the applications that you're producing in-house that actually are your your secret sauce that are created with your chosen tech stack. Yeah, the Apache logs are somewhat customizable. The Kerberos logs are not. The Golang application... <laughs> Kerberos. That, but the Golang application that you've written is infinitely customizable. So keep in mind that the different pieces you deploy have different operating interfaces and yeah that's something to keep in mind as you walk down this path because um, you'll hear us uh, say over and over again choose your kit choose your tech stack choose your standards and stick with them so you have one standardized set that meets your internal needs and you have the handful of of agents and third-party applications that are a little bit different Perhaps you don't need to pay quite as close as attention to, or maybe more attention to, but you are you're containerizing for a bad pun your your areas of of telemetry, 
and trying to break that problem down, separate it, and make it easier to tackle in the future. So if you're looking at your instrumentation patterns, Jack, what what are the overall documents or things? What are the overall places you can go to start looking? So many things. So many ways. Well, okay. If, if you're giving advice to somebody who's new at this, somebody who doesn't know a whole lot about it, what where would you where would you begin them down the path? What I really want to do with my new client is figure out what exactly their instrumentation library is going to be, which you know answers the question of what's the protocol, how metrics are found and read and discovered, how the application's instrumented, what data you can get out of it. To me, making a initial decision there was was kind of key in where I was trying to step off of that. And that was the, the bit of information that I didn't have and what made this a little more challenging than, than I thought it was going to be. But without that particular bit of decision, it's time to think a little bit more abstract. Most of what we're doing is HTTP APIs, REST APIs, uh, service-oriented and architecture sort of, sort of setup. So there are a collection of different methods for instrumentation that you can kind of, that work well with these concepts, you can map well around these concepts. The, I think more or less the oldest and the first one is the use method by our good friend, uh, Brendan Gregg. He was at Netflix and at Sun Microsystems and whatever before that, right? Yes. Okay. We're going to put a link to his uh, write-up about the use method in the show notes. And then you can find the rest of his awesome website. So U stands for utilization. How much is your thing being used? Hits per second kind of thing. S for saturation. How full is it? How many CPU cycles have been consumed? How full is the memory? The E in use is for errors. How many errors have been encountered in whatever you're monitoring? And this is kind of a general way to think about if you're making a hardware device, an API, a library, it has all these faucets to it, and you want to be able to instrument each one or a collection of them and figure out how well are they used, how full is it, what's the saturation, what's the rate of errors that are being produced. So a simple example of this would be something like, how many IOPS do you have available on your disk array? How many IOPS are you currently writing out to the disk array? And what is the error rate of things being written? So you have a, a general sense of what you're currently running, what your capacity is, and if you're starting to fall apart. That's freaking perfect. So the interesting thing about this way of thinking about developing hardware devices and APIs and such is that Brendan Gregg was was really sort of in a hardware problem space uh, when this came about. So this method tends to work best for m- measuring IOPS and disk performance. It tends to work best with hardware-ish system resources. So about this time, uh, internal to Google, they were doing kind of all this research and build-up of their internal uh, best practices and SRE practices and how they make applications observable for for figuring out how to handle errors and detect errors and root cause analysis and all that lovely several years ago. Uh, Tom Willicke, 
I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I've probably screwed it up. Uh, who used to be a Google engineer and moved on from there, uh, took some of what he knew from Google and some of the other uh, work that he was doing around APIs, and he developed the RED method for instrumenting uh, API calls and uh, really focused on stepping away from hardware resources and really being able to focus on what's useful for that API space. So RED, uh, R is rate, so that's your rate of traffic or hits per second kind of measurement. E is your rate of errors. D is your duration or latency for each for each API call. What's the distribution of, of response times that API call is returning? And if I may, this makes a whole lot of sense because on something like a web and like a, the, the an endpoint on a web application, you don't know what your actual capacity is necessarily. You don't know if it's a thousand hits a second or if it's ten hits a second, depending on which endpoint you're calling or how busy other pieces are down the stack because it's distributed. So what you're looking for is are things taking longer? Are things is, is your latency going up to a point where users are having a bad experience? Not so much we have 2,000 IOPS available to us and we're using 1,500 of them. You really want to know how many users are having a bad day. What is a bad day defined as? And, well, as they were saying about this time in history, slow is the new down. Yeah. So the red method was based on work internal to Google, which came out um, very well in, in, as Google's SRE book that I'm sure all of our readers are familiar with which is a large set of best practices uh, modeled and tested and used within Google. The SRE handbook um, preaches about the four golden signals, which is a kind of combination of, of these methods together. The four golden signals are measuring your latency or duration, how long the API call takes to respond, traffic, how much traffic is going through the system hits per second kind of thing errors the rate of requests that fail explicitly or implicitly and finally saturation how full your service is saturation being kind of the hardest one to nail down at least in my mental model um, but that takes the understanding of what your api is and does is it memory constrained is it IO or CPU constrained and how do you figure out the how much the single machine and can process at the same time for this given uh, API call and that's a reason that a lot of folks now do things like redline testing or stress testing or load testing to make sure that they they have an idea roughly of like a single API server or a single app server what can it handle if, if it's running full out what can it do so you know in production exactly. that when you get close to that number that, hey, in our testing, in an ideal situation in testing, we couldn't get above that number, so don't expect it to in production. But again, it changes every time. It's it's harder to nail down than kind of a static number about how many writes a second you can do. But it really does give you kind of a, a baseline or a threshold to say, once we get here, we're going to have a bad day. And it's part of that understanding of, okay, I need to do writes per second to the disk, how do we measure that? What's the potential throughput of the disk? And you do get some 
a pretty good idea of saturation there. Even though that your application does more than write to disk, it also consumes memory. Or you're in a cloud environment and writes to disk fight with network traffic for I.O. because you ha- you're constri- your, your network or your disk I.O. effectively is network I.O. and you only have so much of it available. So yep. if you're doing one, you're also doing the other. So to me, that's kind of the basis for when you're thinking about instrumentation of APIs, what is kind of the basics that you want to try to instrument for each API in each uh, SOA uh, service that you're running? Clearly, there's other instrumentation you want to do. There's other bits of internal state you want to expose. Um, Some of this is handled by the instrumentation library. Prometheus libraries are really good about exposing some basic state about the Go runtime and the process that's that's currently running. What PID is it? How much memory is it consuming? Um, and there's other things in your applications that you're probably interested in in measuring as well. So this isn't a restrictive list. It's a way of thinking about what to measure when you're looking at exposing an API. Well, also the, the golden signals or the red and the use patterns allow you to, to look towards what the SRE folks these days really want out of pretty much every service that gets stood up by a developer, which is some level of an SLO or an SLI. They, they want to know what are the important things to look for in your application to see if it's working correctly or not, and what is it supposed to be doing? Have you breached the latency agreement that you have with your end user, be it another API, be it a human being on the other end of a thing? So you want to be able to say, if this takes more than 30 seconds, bad day, or one second, but you need to kind of know what those are, and if you follow these patterns in instrumentation, you have a really good guidepost on how to get to those numbers SRE wants from you. And remember that having good telemetry isn't observability. All of this builds good telemetry and SLOs sort of define you know what that good telemetry is and make that an easy way to sort of consume that. That doesn't mean your system is necessarily observable, but it's a step along that path of building an observable system is having good telemetry. Similarly, there is a approach to logging that a lot of folks don't take into account. And I brought this up many times in this podcast and earlier in this episode. And I struggled with this the most because I wanted to include some logging best practices as well. And I think there's a lot more writing about instrumentation best practices than there are about logging, which kind of blew my mind. Well, I think part of that comes from the fact that instrumentation really at the end can come down to math, and you can prove math to be correct or incorrect. Whereas logging is a little fuzzier, it's not quite as cut and dry, so people haven't opined quite as much about it. It's also a lot more expensive to operate, and so people... I'm a math guy, you're a journalist, so... Exactly, but (laughs) people are are more hesitant to run a very expensive logging system than a very expensive metric system, because they can understand and quantify the metric system. And for the same dollar, you get a lot more value out of metrics. Now, logs tell you a a very different part of the stack. They, They get much closer to observability if you do them correctly. I do agree, there aren't a whole lot of kind of well-written base-level documents to come off of. Um, but part of this is is having a mental model, having a strategy about what is a log, what are you trying to get out of your logs, mm-hmm. and really, the first thing to 
understand about what a log is, is that it's a record of each specific and actionable event that has occurred in your application. And critically, it's in a standard format. Now, if you are a developer and you're writing writing code on your workstation and you're trying to test something, it may be reasonable to say, hey, I have connected to the database and I have disconnected from the database because you're, you're trying to, to shoehorn a call and you're trying to make sure that you can see where those are happening. In production, those are not helpful. So understanding what actionable means in each context is important. So when you're running on your laptop, you know, you run debug or you run in devel and you have a lot more logs because you're looking at different kinds of things. When you're running in production, you're, you're running at a different logging level because you don't care about each time you go out to the file system to grab something or each time you look up a user's attribute table because you, you don't need that in production. And getting your logs down to a consistent, usable, actionable set of events is a challenge. Um, a lot of people don't, their mental models don't don't wrap that way. They think, oh, well, it was helpful in development. I'm going to need that in production. And generally speaking, you don't. So people generally overlog pretty badly. I've been a developer. I've written my fair share of code. And the easiest thing for me to do to confirm that what's happening in the code is what's in my mental model is have very verbose logging and debug logging of, of each step that my program is walking through. If, I'm, if I've got some bugs, I'm not sure what's going on, I'm going to have some breakpoint debug foo all over the code to figure out, is it exactly doing what I told it to do or what I thought it told it to do? And that's what makes logs an application developer's best friend, and I admit it. So one of the important things to do as an organization that's trying to build these best practices is decide upon a logging format, decide upon a logging library, whatever it is. So all internally written things are using that. Just like instrumentation, decide upon a logging infrastructure, logging library that you can encode these best practices into. And that takes a lot of the burden off of, of each new development team every time you start a new app. But as, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, there is a big screaming problem about this approach. And this is one of the reasons that logging doesn't usually get the attention it deserves, because you're frequently not in control of all the log types you get. You have the, the applications you've written, you are completely in control of. But if it's an Nginx reverse proxy, or if it's Strong Swan, or if it's Active Directory, you have no control over that format in many cases, and you're sort of accepting whatever they throw at you. So you have to normalize it into something. And Elastic is making great strides in this. They have published a very lengthy um, common schema for doing logging, and it covers lots of the basics. It covers stuff and, and has pieces in it for when you're extending your logging, when you're trying to do other things outside of the normal, here's where you'd put it, and this is how it fits into the schema, and please extend where we've missed things. But it's very verbose, and it's a huge shift, especially if you have a, an established baseline for logging somewhere. So if you already have a consistent pattern of like field name mappings and things, don't just change because somebody else is telling you we, we've, we've developed a standard because that's, that's not a, a useful pattern. But don't let client IP and remote address and remote IP and remote IP address filter through all of your logging stacks because developers will do whatever they think sounds right. One of the hardest problems in computer science is naming things. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you have 
11, 15, 25 different ways of referring to the IP address of the initiating system, well, how do you search across all your logs that way? How do you actually then go find things? So logz.io actually has a fairly decent post up about the best practices. It's not long. It Everybody who does logging should stop and read it right now because you should just sort of be nodding along with everything they say. And Okay, yeah, we, we should have a universal trace ID that goes through all your logs. You should have kind of base formats. You should have these things so you know what they are. And if you're not doing that, you should start working towards it. Um, it's tech debt, and we can't spend all of our time working on tech debt because perfect is the enemy of good, but we should be working on it, slowly chipping away at that mountain, otherwise it's going to kill us. But one of the big points that the Logzio blog post makes and that I wanted to make in my best practices that I handed over to my new client and that I want to make here is that there is a big difference between logging debug work and production logging that runs through some sort of automated centralized system, whether that's uh, LogZ's product that they offer, whether that's Datadog's log ingestion, whether that's your internal uh, Elastic stack. Production logs are something that needs to be machine parsable. They need to be some sort of structured object. And those structured objects need to follow some sort of, of standard so that they're easy to parse. So when you write a new application, you can continue your logging standards and you don't have to reinvent the wheel of how to parse these logs and get things like duration of each API event uh, out of your logging stack. And as an aside, this is one of the reasons that I love Logstash so very much, even though it is written in JRuby and runs on the JVM, <laughs> is because it's an extraordinarily powerful ETL tool. You can take pretty much any logging format that's ever existed from pretty much any source that anybody currently runs and get it into a consistent, normalized format and then output it to pretty much anything anybody else has ever written or run. So it does all that heavy lifting for you. And if you have external logging sources that you don't control, you can use something like Logstash to slice and dice the incoming stream to normalize it and standardize it so you can make sense of it. And you can say, oh, well, they called the field remote IP and we want it to be client IP or however, and just yep. go through and fix it live. So it's, anyway, that that's... That's like going to be a useful tool in your, in your stack of figuring out how to do logging well. One of the things I've gone through recently is how to set up pipelines in Datadog and be able to set up grok patterns to parse logs, emit JSON objects out of those, and be able to remap those fields. So the same tech stack is, is in a lot of different solutions, whether you're doing it with Logstash internally or using some uh, SaaS service. Remember, if you're emitting a log, you have to answer the basic questions of when the thing happened, what was sending it to you, what the payload was, and then is this an error or not? Kind of the severity or the, the other piece of it. And the payload is where all the fun things happen in terms of what endpoint was it, how, how much latency, what user, blah, blah, blah. But without the, the basics of where did it come from, what time did it come from that place, what severity is it, you're going to get lost pretty fast. So start there. Start with high-resolution timestamps. Start with, 
if you need host names, if you need method names, if you need container names, where did it come from? How do you trace this back to a source origin? Um, and then your severity and your, your payload kind of follow through from that. Because even, even if you have junk logs and there's a sudden increase in logging and you can tell where it's coming from, you know where to go look in your infrastructure when you're trying to fix a problem. Again, none of these things are absolutes. None of these things are prescriptive methods on how you how you successfully run one of these stacks. But a lot of these tools and a lot of these ideas and a lot of these methods, you can pick up and move between environments and you can say, so what are we running here? We have a mixture of Scala and Java primarily, so we're going to go down this this particular route. Or, hey, we really love the way Kubernetes works, and so we're going to use Prometheus for everything. Or whatever whatever you have decided is appropriate for your stack, follow it and use it and try to make sense of it in ways that the rest of the organization can get value out of it and can easily understand and action kind of what you've built. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 84th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night. Ruby.